Valparaiso. <laughs> this is Allison Chudy and Willow Walsh, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. <laughs> the Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good this season. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today, we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive titled Curious in a Very Positive Way and Seeking Some Level of Normalcy. And today, we have a special guest with us in the studio, Beth Schutte. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. And you heard that right. We've got another Schutte in the house, Allison's sister. Um, We love having guests choose the stories. Do you want to talk a little bit about what drew you to the stories that you chose? Beth, curious. I just loved that tagline of curious from a positive perspective, because I think that there can just be, yeah, so many benefits to curiosity. Um, And I hadn't really ever thought that there could be a negative reason. Um, So hearing a story um, specifically talking about curious from a positive perspective just really drew me in. I didn't really read much about it. I just saw the title and I was like, ooh, that sounds good. And then so normalcy, I, man, there's just something about people who end up homeless that just really pulls on my heartstrings. You know, I think that a lot of times people can um, judge people who, who are homeless and have absolutely no understanding of you know, what led to that and, um, or what those people are feeling. And so there's um, a line that uh, the speaker says about um, that they haven't lost their humanity. And it just really, it just like drew me in. And so I was excited to listen to that one too. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super excited to have these stories on today. And I think Allison, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but this might be the first or one of the few times that we've sort of like done stories across initiatives because one of them the first story is from i think just the general welcome project initiative and then the second one is from the invisible project initiative yeah i I mean you're right about the two initiatives i guess i don't 100 percent know if we've never done it before but we do tend to cluster around uh themes and that often means that they're coming from each initiative each week so yeah, it'll be fun to have to see what through lines we might find, even though they're from different parts of the Welcome Project buckets. I also think it would be really helpful, Beth, for our listeners to uh, like just know where you are and the kind of location, like how you locate yourself, whether that's geographical or um, education or faith based, or like how do you want people to know who you are as they listen to your insights today? That's a, that's a big question. That's loaded. And I will keep it simple (laughs) because that's not the point of this. Uh, I just locationally, I'm coming from Colcord, Oklahoma, little tiny place in Northeast Oklahoma. 
that's because I live and work at New Life Ranch. It's a Christian camp and retreat center in uh, Oklahoma. And now we have a location in Arkansas. And I am our staff development manager. So I live in a world of development and growth and change and just love doing that um, across the board, whether that's faith-based or professionally, um, personally. I just, I just love growth and talking about it and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, that's part of you know why it excites me to be here with y'all to talk about people's stories because that's a huge part of it is when we learn from our stories, then we can grow. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah. And at one point you also were doing some life coaching I know that you're not doing that professionally necessarily anymore, but I think that is a, another way in which you really cared about individuals and how they can grow with that sort of support that you would be able to offer based on your, like what you've been trained in and what you studied at seminary. I think it might yeah. be fun. For, oh, go ahead. So I thought it would be fun too, for people to know that there's 14 years difference between us. I'm the the older. <laughs> and um, I come from a family, well, we come from a family of three additional siblings. They're all boys. So I was very worried when our mother announced that there was going to be a fifth child, that it was going to be another boy. <laughs> I was pretty sure I was going to have to run away if it was. So I was very, very happy to have a baby sister and I, you know, I was out of the house by the time you were turning five. So um, it took us a while to get to know each other because you had to grow up a bit. Um, but it's been a real, I don't know, since you were in high school, really, that we've been able to start forging our relationship together and loved it pretty much ever since. Yeah, I think we... I don't know, maybe we lost some years in that, but I think we maybe also missed some of the drama that comes with sisterhood <laughs> when you're closer in age. So we don't have any of that baggage. We just get to enjoy being adults together. And it's been awesome. I've loved it. Here, here. Okay. Shall we do the first story then? This first story is titled Curious in a Very Positive Way. So my husband and I, we've adopted two uh, girls who were born in China. Early on, when, when we adopted our first daughter and she came home as, as a, an 11-month-old, we felt um, really embraced and pleasantly surprised when going out to a restaurant or going out waiting in line at the store. The response that we would have most of the time from people in the community who, you know, would smile and say, wasn't she cute and ask us questions, sometimes too many questions, um, but who were curious in a very positive way. And, and that was wonderful. I mean, it, it, I felt reaffirmed as an adoptive parent and I, and I felt hopeful, you know, for the future of my daughter and how she would eventually live, you know, her young life out in this community. And I won't say that that's been replaced by anything negative, but when babies stop being babies, <laughs> you don't get the attention or the recognition that, that there's something special about your family or something different in a positive way about your family. And, you know, perhaps that's fine because I don't really need my eight-year-old hearing questions or too many comments 
from complete strangers when she can understand. <laughs> but I do wonder about how things are going to progress for her in elementary school. That, And I wonder how I'm going to be able to help her navigate that because I haven't had that experience of being the person of a different ethnicity in a community except for the the short few weeks that I've been to China. And I don't really have an answer. I guess we'll just take it as it comes. I'm a big advocate for the Hilltop House down on old campus. It was the only preschool that we would have considered just because it's got such a diverse group of kids there. The teachers are diverse, ethnically diverse. There's a you know span of socioeconomic backgrounds for these kids. Um, I love that my older daughter makes reference to her friend Regina as brown. And when I was a kid, we didn't talk about brown. It was black and white. And it's just, it's small. It's really subtle. Wasn't anything that we taught her. You know, that just kind of also speaks to the real diversity in skin tone and facial features and hair that you just can't lump all Chinese people in one group. We'll all put out our arms in the middle of the table and she'll look at her younger sister's skin color and mine and my husband's and, you know, we see that there's a range, lighter than, darker than. I guess that's the extent she has described her own skin color. My mother-in-law, she will describe uh, my older daughter's hair as black say, well, no, it's not black. It's dark brown. It's kind of like mine. It's actually really close to my color. And she's, oh, I guess you're right. I guess I just, you know, just keep, you know, bouncing back to that thought about Chinese people having dark black straight hair. It's not so simple as that. So I wonder, um, before anything else, Beth, when you hear this story again now, or for the first time, are there certain details that pop out to you? It's interesting hearing the non-minority perspective. So, I mean, and I don't, I guess I don't know that she's not a minority, um, but from someone thinking through, well, how do I help my daughter who might be seen as other in her community? Like, how am I going to help her when I don't know what that experience is like? A lot of what I heard her talk about was this, well, I guess kind of have to take it as it comes. Like, it's not so simple as that. Like, you can't group all people in one group together. Like, there's the, so it was even the differences and minutia within a minority, like from her, that she's speaking of from her daughter's, her perspective of, of her daughter. Yeah, this interview was actually done. Um, early on in our story collection. And I'm noticing by the date on the website, we posted it in 2013. So that's already almost nine years ago. And, mm. you know, her, her daughters are teenagers, almost like young adults. They're starting to leave the house and it would be so interesting to re-interview her because she doesn't know what's going to happen. Um, she says in uh, how things are going to progress for her in elementary school. And now she knows. So like, it would yeah, be so interesting. And I, I, yeah, to your point, Beth, about like, what would it mean for a parent who's used to being in the dominant culture, in this case, white culture, to understand like what experiences her daughters would have um, as the, what her peers, their peers would experience them as like the ones who are different. I mean, we do, Valparaiso is a predominantly white community. It's starting to get more increasingly racially diverse, but still like, I think it's at 88%. 
right? I guess I haven't checked the most recent statistics. Do you kind of wonder how that went? Willow, what is what do you make of the earlier part of the story when the questions, sometimes too many questions, do you, like, how are you making sense of that? Yeah, I think there's like sort of a line that happens between like when you ask questions out of curiosity, but I think like the way that people experience questions, like as the asker of questions, you know, that's the first time that you've heard it because you're having this conversation. But I think for her, her experience is that people are constantly asking her questions. And so like, on, I think on the low end, it can be sort of like just exhausting to receive that amount of questions from people. But I think when she says like, who were curious in a really positive way. Like, I think I thought about like, what would that look like on the other end? Like curious in like sort of a negative way. I don't know. I think about my experience as like a queer person and with my partner. And it's like, if I have to get asked questions about like how we live or like, who's the guy in the relationship or just like a bunch of questions that it's just like, I don't feel like I want to have to answer them all the time. So I think maybe that would be sort of the opposite end of like, maybe it can get to be too much or, you know, I don't know, maybe just like tiring as being people's source of like filling the information. But I think like she does note that it's not coming out of like people's intent for like malice or something like that. It's out of just a genuine positive curiosity. But but then I think getting so many questions and you still feel like the other, you know, you feel different because people are asking so many questions that they wouldn't ask other people. You're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. Uh, Reagan is off this week, but we have a guest with us, my baby sister, Beth Schutte. And we're super glad to have you with us, Beth. I saw you nodding. So is there something that, that Willow said you wanted to respond to? Part of it too is people's tone. You know, when when they are asking those questions, I think you can tell a lot by people's tone. But Willow, what you were saying of the exhaustion of people asking and you being that source of information for them as they're trying to, you know, educate themselves and be curious and learn people's stories that I think we can forget that people also need to just be people and live their life and not be responsible for educating other people. I wondered too, um, what kinds of questions they were getting. And I don't know why as an interviewer, I didn't ask that or it didn't make it into the edit. But when she says, and um, I felt reaffirmed as an adoptive parent, it made me think that it was questions about like, especially if this is an infant, I think she's talking about this 11 month old, you know, babies draw us in and we feel like we can be familiar with the people because we're talking about a newborn. And But it did make me think like they must be asking, here's a brown baby and a white parent. <laughs> They're like probably one of the first parent, the questions, first questions is always like, you know, how did you adopt them? Or is this like, who is the, is this your daughter? Like, so questions about family, if she felt reaffirmed as an adoptive parent in that set of questions at that time, I'm wondering if it's things like, oh, that's wonderful that you're, you know, making a home for these children, but like, that's probably not how it's going to come up later in life. Right people will e either assume that there's no relationship between an eight-year-old and the white lady standing next to them, or they're going to be a little bit more 
less warm and oozy about the questions they're asking. It would be more invasive maybe. Or like the storyteller says later, she doesn't really want her daughter to have to hear the questions that people would be asking, that your your connection to your parents are always being questioned. Is that your daughter? Is that your mom? Or is that your dad? To have to be the experiencing that constant question would be really difficult, both as a parent and a child, I would think. Yeah, I think part of the beauty of adoption is that you literally are a family, regardless of the genes that you share. At some point, how refreshing if people just accept you as a family, rather than having to define who came from where or how you're related or how you're not related. Feels like we have to define all the time. And really, I don't think we need to. I think that there's beauty in not having to define that and just be like, yeah, this is a family. That's awesome. Yeah, this made me think of a, a story when I when I was talking to somebody, I can't remember, it was like a wedding a few years back, but I was telling this guy like, oh yeah, I'm going with my best friend to Jordan and we might do some like some volunteering there or something. Like we weren't sure what the plan was yet. And, and his response to that was, oh, well, why don't you do that here? Isn't there enough work to be done here? And I guess sort of my comeback should have been like, oh, how many hours do you volunteer every week? Because I'm sure it was zero. I don't know, that sort of like negativity of like, I mean, I'm sure she could have gotten like some sort of like flack like that too. Like, aren't there kids here? I don't know. Just again, that idea of like not just letting families just be families and sort of having to like pick it apart in a way that wouldn't happen if her daughter like wasn't a minority in the community that she was in. And so I think it's just putting that extra stress that's not happening on the family, which I think is interesting. It's like, like they're the family that's already sort of doing their own thing and being fine. And it's sort of the people outside of them who don't interact with them, who don't know about them as a family that sort of pose that sort of issue for them. I don't know who wants to take this first. I'm thinking about her interest in Hilltop House, which is a, a preschool um, and the teachers being diverse and the kids there being diverse, both racially and socioeconomically. Um, why, I mean, there's some sense in which maybe it's obvious why that matters or is important for her, but it leads into this story about how her older daughter makes reference to her friend Regina as Brown. And then she says, when I was a kid, we didn't talk about Brown. It was black and white and kind of wonder how you all are understanding that moment in the story. I mean, for me, I was thinking about it as like. I don't know. It's like I grew up in Valparaiso and I don't know if Decatur is any different, um, but I know Valparaiso is predominantly white. Every classroom I had been in since preschool through elementary, middle school, high school, even college um, was predominantly white. Um, and so I think that there's something that happens when everybody that's around you looks like you and you don't. I think it's so easy to other people when they don't look like you or have that sort of like same experience as you or like socioeconomic status. And so I think what's really helpful, what I'm hearing from her is like, she even points out like there's a diverse group of kids there from a variety of different backgrounds. And so she wants her kid to sort of be exposed to that because we don't know how she grew up when she was younger, but she said that when she was a kid, she talked about it as black and white, but because her kid is in Hilltop House, you know, she's having a different experience. She's actually interacting with other kids. 
and so she's 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 learning about different people in a way that's different than if you grew up in a predominantly you know white classroom i think yeah i think that um it also feels like she's celebrating that her daughters get to be curious <laughs> there's that word again about skin tone and it doesn't have to be something you you know don't talk about or can't explore name um and so that you know even then as a family they're able to put their arms into the middle of the table and just sort of talk about and look at the different skin tones um she doesn't say this the storyteller doesn't say this here but i'm guessing that like even for her and her husband who i just happen to know are both white um like their skin tones are probably also not, not the same. Um, so it also seems like a kind of celebration of a permission to really engage race as diverse and celebrate it. Do you know why she corrects her mother-in-law? <laughs> and um, it might be helpful to read this back in since we played the story so long ago, but um yeah the mother-in-law describing her older daughter's hair as black and then the storyteller says no it's not black it's dark brown kind of like mine <laughs> in fact it's actually very similar um and the mother-in-law says oh i guess you're right i just you know just and then the storyteller connects the initial comment back to our assumptions that chinese people have dark black straight hair but I, I wonder, um, you know, that that was an important enough anecdote for the storyteller to share. What do you think that speaks to? I think I hear her desire for this concept of not other, but different in terms of how she was talking about it's not black or white, it's darker than, lighter than that the hair wasn't quite as cut and dry as it's black, but it's a different shade of brown in terms of, yeah, I like, I just hear her desire for this, hey, let's not see things in polarized view of like, well, if someone is of Asian descent, well, they have black hair. When that, actually, if you look at things, it's not this like, black and white, whether that's like literal terms or the actual, you know, thought process of things are black and white, that there really actually is gray, that there's tones and that it isn't about this classifying into groups, but that we're all these different shades, metaphorically and actually physically. And so that's what I hear when she's making that point again. I think it kind of goes back to like this idea of like her daughter going to Hilltop and like what the what the experience is like, you know, for her being around other people. And it is like those gray areas that's like the variety that people are. And then I think for the mom, it's it's sort of like it just shows us like, OK, like so when you see somebody as like, you know, Asian American people as this thing you know, that you're just grouped into one whole, then it just, it's easier to be like, oh, well, everybody has black hair or everybody is like this. And so I think that sort of proves her point as to why, you know, it's beneficial for her daughter to go to Hilltop House because 
like you can experience all of these different people and you can see all of the different you know gray tones that there is in between and so it isn't so black and white and people aren't just an other but you know everybody is an individual that's a part of this group so i think it just ends up proving your point in the end yeah i don't know if i can quite articulate this or not but it's um making me think that um her daughter who doesn't yet have the categories you know because she's not old enough yet to have been conditioned by the sort of stereotypes that we sort of carry and perpetuate in our society so her daughter is able just to like look and notice like my friend regina is brown and i think that something of what might be bothering the storyteller about her mother-in-law's comment is that she didn't really look closely <laughs> Like it, it was like the filter of the bias or assumption or stereotype that we have in our culture just meant that she didn't see or couldn't see even. Um, sometimes I think that's true. Like our, our biases actually mean like, you know, there's so much detail in the world around us that we have to kind of um, just ig ignore because otherwise it would probably overwhelm our brains, like just on a physiological level. And so I think the biases that we hold often get in the way of actually seeing, um, which I think is also going to be true of our second story too, when we talk about people who experience homelessness, right? Like what do you not actually notice because you have a, a story that's already telling itself in your, in your brain? And so, yeah, it's super exciting for the storyteller as a mom to have her daughter in a situation where she could actually, um, prior to being culturally conditioned, like really just notice and appreciate the difference in her friends and the difference in her family. I love that. I think the question that's been circling in my mind as I've heard this story now twice is this, okay, well, how do we be curious in a positive way as we age, right? Or as the people around us age, you know, <clears throat> specifically in terms of her story, right? She was saying, I don't know how this is gonna happen when my daughter's older, but even just posing to myself of how can I be curious in a positive way? And I like that idea, Allison, of, just be intentional to see, to pay attention, to be aware and not make assumptions of like anything, right? To just be present. And then that allows your brain to engage in the details, whether it's your circumstances or a person around you who's the same, you know, generally, but not really, um, or who's someone who generally is different than you, but then there's so much more beyond that. And so maybe that is some of it of staying curious in a positive way is just being intentional to stay present to all the detailed differences of things. So side note, I've, I didn't start a timer, so I have no idea. I think it's been 30 minutes ish so i'm going to do the top of the hour thing willow and hopefully you know you can play with adding a little extra music at the beginning if i'm doing it a bit too soon and then i will start a timer so that i am better able to keep track of 
um, this from here on out. This is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community-supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. We rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. And recently, you know, we moved to a new studio. So we have a few bills that we could use some help with. So please consider supporting the station by visiting the website, wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax deductible and we would sure appreciate it. So um, this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. And you're here with me today, uh, Allison Schutte and my co-host Willa Walsh. Reagan Skaggs is on vacay. <laughs> I don't actually know if that's fair because she's probably working. Um, <laughs> but uh, she's not with us. However, Reagan will be back, of course. Instead, we do have a guest, my sister, Beth Schutte. She is uh, hailing from Oklahoma and soon to be visiting the Vale of Paradise. I'm super excited that we get to see each other face to face. Um, so yeah, we uh, spent the first half hour with our story from um, the campus collection. And it was um, a woman, a mother talking about her family um, and how adopting two girls from China, um, thinking through like some of the experiences of people asking questions about um, their family and, and, and when that was okay and positive and when that maybe got to be um, a burden. Uh, the second story um, is from our Invisible Project initiative. And many of you, if you've been listening to the show, know this initiative well. Um, it was a, a collaboration between the Welcome Project and several nonprofits in Porter County that are seeking to end homelessness, as well as the Porter County Museum. So the intention of the initiative was to help people really question their assumptions about what homelessness looks like. So this story, Seeking Some Level of Normalcy, comes from that, that collection. And you might recognize our storytellers if you have listened recently, because this is another element of the, the couple's story that we, that we heard from a few weeks ago. Anything else from you, Willow, before I start this up? Uh, this one is titled Seeking Some Level of Normalcy. It's about, I think, a lot about pride. Nobody wants to be seen as someone who can't make it on their own. We're all human beings, and, and we all have the same strengths and weaknesses within ourselves. So you just have to be willing to look at yourself and, and acknowledge that and say, I can't do this alone. We would sometimes sit in a parking lot in our vehicle at night and just talk all night long, like, you know, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And it's like, well, we didn't know that there was anybody out there that was willing to help us. I think, I think we were always seeking some some level of normalcy. Mm -hmm. You know, um, finding opportunities to be 
to look like everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want people to see what, what what's going on. During the day, we would spend a lot of time at the parks uh, uh, here in Valparaiso in Lake Station. They have a nice Riverview Park, but most of the parks at 10 p.m. close up. Yeah, you're constantly moving from place to place. Uh, a lot of times on hot days, we would spend our days at the library. Air know, where, where they had air conditioning and a bathroom facility there. And we uh, both loved to read. And yeah, we both loved to read. Yeah, nighttime was the worst. Um, and of course, you know, you don't really have that many belongings, but you know, what you do have, I mean, you know, you've got everything crammed in your vehicle and and uh, you know, even sleeping a lot of times, we would park out away from kind of the store because you know we didn't want to you know in interfere. We didn't want to be in the way, you know. And then sometimes it's hard to sleep because you know you're just not sure of your surroundings and you don't really feel that safe. And during that time, I think that's most of our resources. We're making sure you know we have gas in the vehicle so we can move if we have to. Uh, we have food to eat, which was difficult with no cooking facilities. Everything had to be pre-prepared, and of course, you know, that's more costly too. Hygiene, for me, that was the worst part. Restroom facilities and hygiene. Of course, it was summertime when we were homeless, which I think we were fortunate because we could go up to the park and we could go swimming, and uh, we kept lots of empty gallon we jugs and we fill with fill them with water. And like I said, it was summertime, so it wasn't so bad, you know, having to wash your hair with cold water. And you had <laughs> but, to dump a bucket of water over. Right, there. <laughs> you know, and and yeah, we would kind of go to the park in a secluded area, and we would, you know, like bathe each other and watch and make sure nobody was coming, you know, so we could, you know, uh, help each other do that. Just because you're homeless doesn't mean you have to surrender humanity. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio, and you're here with Allison Schutte, Willa Walsh, and Beth Schutte, our guest co-host today. So we just played a story from The Invisible Project, which is an initiative of the Welcome Project that seeks to help disrupt some of our stereotypes about homelessness. Um, Beth, I don't know if you care if we start with you again, just wondering what details pop out at you from this couple's story. I heard two kind of major themes that popped out to me. The first was, I don't think the like major theme of maybe even where they were going, but the fact that he said, you know, the the piece about we all have a little pride and that we all need to just be able to admit at times, I can't do this alone. And she admitted that she didn't know that there were people that they were there to help. And so I like hear this theme of like community and, um, and anyway, I have other thoughts that can go there, but I, those that popped out to me this time and then the the other theme of just how exhausting i am such a person of my space and my atmosphere that the constant change that they're talking about the constant on the move the not knowing how safe you are having you know where your hygiene coming from where you can go to the bathroom where you're going to get your meal just the like this and this and this and this I man my like empathy on like how exhausting that was was just like beating off the charts in that and I think with that 
his line that is just killer of just because you're homeless doesn't mean you have to surrender humanity is I think the biggest kind of theme in all of that of remember we're human in this and that it was just this is just really hard but we're human and we need people that's what I heard yeah I love that I I'm wondering he 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 delivers that line in the context of them having to do the bathing and just thinking about I'm working backwards from what he said to imagine that if you were to be bathing semi-publicly worried about people coming upon you you know if you're doing a sponge bath or even if you're just washing your hair like you're anticipating judgment that's like oh you're that type of person because you're doing this thing and thinking like isn't that interesting because actually it's a very human thing to clean yourself like we all have to do it in fact it's not just a human thing it's a species thing like dogs do it cats do it etc cetera, etc cetera. so it should be a, a moment of like empathy but because it's out of context people are going to slap a kind of judgment on it which yeah requires him to say like hey you know this is not changing. This is not diminishing us. It's hard and painful and um, embarrassing, but it's not diminishing us. So please don't, <laughs> please don't diminish us. I feel like the initial line too, like the line that the story starts out on when he says that it's a lot about pride. I think that sort of fits in with it at the same way. It's like humanity and and pride. And I think like, there is a sort of giving up of pride that you have to do to allow yourself to be in situations where people can sort of have these like preconceived judgments of you or, you know, like if you're doing that, you're that type of person. And so like to be able to uh, sort of navigate those feelings, like, I mean, I don't feel like I do a good job of that. Like I have intense social anxiety at times. And like, that's like the number one thing. I'm like, I can't go in the grocery store because somebody's going to make some snap judgment about me. And that's horrible. Obviously, this is nowhere near in comparison to that. But I, it's like you understand that you have to sort of like take in what other people view you as and and still hold on and know that, you know, you can't be those things that people say you are. And so I think that's a really difficult spot to be in to sort of like, obviously, they have like an intense amount of like, grace about this and, and insightfulness about this experience that they had. And so to know that you, I don't know, to be able to recognize like being put in these situations, like bathing outside or having to go to different parks and things, but still knowing that like, if you go to those places, like maybe you're in the library or at a park, you know, that people can sort of I don't know, point a finger at you being a part of something, you know, like you're a homeless person and not like, oh yeah, there's these two people that I know that are my neighbors or something like, you know, I think it's just, again, like being grouped into like one whole group. That's really, that's really problematic. The other thing that strikes me that I've never really thought about before is like when you were talking Willow about going into the grocery store, I was assuming, so you could correct me if I'm wrong, that you were thinking at least in part about like whether people would read you as queer in some way and then have kind of judgments or questions about your identity as a queer person. And the interesting thing about like sexuality or race, even though we hate when people project their biases, stereotypes, or use our identity to discriminate against us, 
like those identities are still usually experienced as positive for the self. So we understand we're living in a society that's homophobic or in a society that's racist. And so it's going to create problems for me or difficulties or challenges. But like, you know, I love myself as a queer person or I love my black community. Um, And there's like a positive cultural identity that you can go back to. But with homelessness and experiencing homelessness, like, I mean, I don't even think it should be called an identity. That's why I think we start saying things like, people who are experiencing homelessness instead of homeless people. <laughs> so I, I don't actually think it is an identity. I think it's actually an experience. And yet our society treats it as an identity. And there's nothing in that identity that you could actually, well, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but from, from my position, <laughs> not having experienced homelessness, like I don't think there's something I'd rally around behind that identity. So that would make it all the harder. I would guess. You're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, and Willa Walsh. And today we have a guest, um, Beth Schutte, my younger sister. Um, and these two stories that we've been listening today were ones that grabbed Beth's attention when she was just checking out our website, which is welcomeproject.velpo.edu. And this second story we've been talking about comes from our Invisible Project. And so it's um, looking at experiences people have of, of, of homelessness. Beth, I know when, when we've played stories from this collection before, we often notice uh, the storytellers talking about how hard it is to ask for help. You know, we've thought through that for ourselves as just individuals, like, do you like asking for help? How is that? Why is that hard? Um, so I just wonder if, if that resonates for you at all and like how you might talk about it to see if there's a different perspective you would have to bring to it. Even more so than not liking to ask for help. I hate the feeling of being perceived as weak or not capable. And that comes from being the younger sister to brothers (laughs) and, and just, you know, significantly younger to siblings who were off doing things that I think fairly I shouldn't have been doing because I was that much younger. And so I do recognize I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder when it comes to, you know, some of my reasons for not liking to feel weak, but yeah, I don't like asking for help. I think it tends to be last resort when I'm struggling, whether that's emotionally or physically or, you know, like something I'm working on, like a project, like when I feel stuck. But at the same time, I also struggle that I have as a single person is that I love the idea of someone who could anticipate that for me or who could be a regular check-in on some of that. But that's also this preconceived fairy tale perspective of relationships, even, you know, significant partnerships that all of a sudden they're so in tune to your needs that you don't have to ask for help, which is ridiculous. And I know that. And so I think that even in that desire for someone 
to, or maybe for it to feel easier because I would have someone in the same house as me, like looking towards my interest a little bit. Um, man, yeah, it is. It's so hard to ask for help. And I think that that is something that is very innate to human nature. We want to be, and, and probably American culture. Um, you know, I see it, I see it all the time. We all need a little bit more humility, vulnerability in our lives. Well, I think it's interesting too, because when you're thinking about, you know, if I had a partner, there'd be somebody who was checking in on me and it's then it's not thought of as like, I am weak or have a need, but somebody is just like caring about me. (laughs) And then it's just like a normal thing because like we care about the people that we love. So it's interesting that when it becomes something outside of our intimate circle, it no longer is just about care. Now it's about exposing ourselves. It's about weakness. And, And isn't it interesting that we associate need with weakness. It is definitely true that it's, you know, it's associated with our vulnerability, but yeah, I'd like to know how much of that is American culture and how much of it is just human, like fear of vulnerability. It is just really incredibly difficult to expose ourselves in that way. I I was wondering if there's like a Midwestern aspect to it too, like the idea of like, not wanting to be a burden because he because he talks about like you know you don't want to seem like weak because he talks about strengths and weaknesses but then also you know they're talking about like when they're in the park or something they don't want to be a burden or they don't want to be like in the way and i think i don't know again i don't know if this is american or just like a midwestern thing because like i don't know like i feel like i don't know it's like you know i love shooty and i feel like if my car broke down like I mean, I feel like I could call her if there's nobody, you know, else, but then I would also feel just like horrible. I know that I would spend at least 20 minutes being like, do I have to wake her up right now? Like how would like, <laughs> you know, and so it's just like, but I know that you'd be fine with it, like theoretically, but like, I don't know, it's just still so hard. Like, I, you know, it's like, you don't want to be a burden. And then there's also the Midwestern thing of like, you don't straight up tell people like when they're being a burden because you have to have that sort of like midwestern grace of like oh everything's fine you know come on in so i don't know it is it's just like it's that vulnerability of like having to ask for help and then like also that fear of like you know is this person you know gonna be honest with me and you know tell me if i'm being a burden or not i don't know yeah like it like sucks from multiple angles (laughs) like you're either weak or you just have to be vulnerable or you're gonna feel like a burden like and you're right and it's like if you if i ask my partner for those things it's like oh you know whatever like you know she's gonna come out and drive in the middle of the night and come get me and you know maybe that's her job i don't know but you know it's like (laughs) asking other people that is it's like it's really hard i i don't know what that is yeah i'm going back to the part of the story too, where they're talking about parking in the Walmart parking lot in order to have a place to sleep and be near bathrooms and that kind of thing. And, and Beth, there's another story that this couple tells about the Walmart parking lot being the place where they realized there were other people in their same boat because other people who are experiencing homelessness will use the parking lot in the same way. But in this case here, it's like, you know, they, don't park too close because they don't want to, she says, interfere. And he says, be in the way. 
And I just think that's so interesting because like, you know, not thinking about using the parking lot as a place to sleep. I just think of those parking lots as huge and impersonal and even the Walmart store, I think of it that way. And so the fact that they're concerned on the behalf of like the employees, maybe even the owner, I just think that like they have so much care and concern for their neighbors (laughs) Um, but that just doesn't get seen. And I mean, I think that's one of the things I, I love about doing these stories for the Welcome Project, because we get to amplify those voices a little bit. But, you know, people will often, I think, maybe just speaking from personal experience, look at a, a, a person that's homeless and think they have nothing to offer. But actually, in this case, they're offering quite a bit of like care, even if it's in this abstract way that will not be recognized by the people who are customers there, by the people who are employees there, by the people who own the store. So another clear moment where they demonstrate their full humanity that I feel like is easily overlooked. Well, and I think that goes to the lack of people's curiosity. We make judgments about it, but then we don't take the time to hear their stories. So we don't know we may see a car full of stuff in a parking lot and we'll think whatever about it. But the truth is that if we were curious to hear their story, we would hear that care and concern that this couple had. We would hear this vulnerability of, man, it's just so hard to ask for help or we don't know who to ask or we can't even really think about asking for help because we're so caught up in the, okay, what decision do we have to make next on where do we go and how do we provide for ourselves that we just get bogged down in that. And so, yeah, I just, in terms of like thinking about these, how these stories tie together too, of this theme of curiosity to reveal that deeper story of we would, we would never know unless you asked and you would miss this perspective of care and concern that I don't think I've ever thought when seeing someone who's experiencing homelessness. I don't know if this is a fair question or not, but I wonder if maybe Willow, you can start because we've talked about so many of these stories. Do you feel like you see differently now? because you've listened to so many, you know, cause the other thing I'll tell Beth is um, the last few times we've played stories from the invisible project, the people experiencing homelessness have said prior to this happening to me, like I never really knew or paid attention to homeless people. And like, I didn't know that it could happen to just anybody. So like they are very clear that once you have the experience, you see it um, and you empathize. And then like this actual, this storyteller here, um, uh, he says like, I'll, you know, I'll never overlook somebody in need again. Yeah. So I wonder, um, Willow, have you started noticing any difference in the way you encounter people? Um, And I, I guess, I mean, like in some ways we don't always know who's experiencing homelessness. That's part of the point of the invisible project but have you recognized anything i mean i haven't had any sort of experiences with people that have like 
that have really changed. But I mean, I think in just the way that I approach, I don't know, people as individuals, because I think, I mean, if we're going to go full circle again, so I like, I grew up in like in Valparaiso, which a lot of people have like single family homes, which they own, predominantly white community. And I think you sort of get the people around you or maybe the, the media that you're watching, you get this sort of like veil of like stereotypes of other people. And so I think like, especially the stories in the in the invisible project, I think it sort of like lifts that veil a little bit. And but I, what I mean by veil is like, I don't know, like homeless people, they choose this, they, they decide to, to be in this circumstance, they could help themselves, they could get a job, they're frivolous with money, you know, it's like, there's all of these sort of like stereotypes that you sort of grow up with that I don't know, you you don't necessarily subscribe to, but I don't know, you're definitely steeped in it. And so I think what this does is gives you like this individual perspective of like, you know, when you're experiencing homelessness, it's just like you said, Alice, and it's just, it's not because you're a certain type of person or because you're a certain type of way or a certain thing happened to you. It's just, it can sort of happen to anybody. You know, it's like if I lost my job or, you know, if my partner lost her job, it's just like, yeah, that would be us. Like, I mean, I hopefully we would have a few family supports in there, but, you know, remove, remove a few of those family supports and, you know, you're right in this situation. So I think there's, maybe that's boiled down. That's more of like a, maybe a generous mindset of like trying to sort of break down all of these things that you've sort of grew, grown up steeped in and just show up and be present and be curious and be vulnerable and understand that you're sort of carrying some of these stereotypes, but you're going to approach everybody as an individual. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just listening. I think maybe that's it. Maybe that's like the whole thing. You just need to listen. And instead of just like assuming that, you know, everything, you're just going to stop assuming that, you know, everything and that, you know, everything about people. And then you just listen to people. And I think you find out a lot more than just sort of like bringing along your baggage of assumptions. Well, um, you've spent another quality hour with us at Listen Up Welcome Project Radio. And before we head out today, please check out WVLP's full schedule of shows at WVLP.org. We highly recommend Morning Black, which airs live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge is a platform for discussions surrounding the concerns of race and ethnicity, specifically within and about the African-American community. The program is underwritten by donations from members of the Northwest Indiana African-American Alliance and their community partners. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, you can make a donation by going to wvlp.org support.